Hello, everyone. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a surprise bonus episode. Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. I'd like to give a big thanks out to our listeners in India, whose appreciation for good literature has always been evident by the numbers of those who listen to our show and have for years. It is to them that we dedicate this story from one of my favorite authors, Rudyard Kipling. Like the U.S., India has its share of rivers, rivers which, before the days of trucking, carried the commerce of the country and helped to build the India we know today and cities like Calcutta into bustling commercial empires. In his unique, descriptive, and intuitive way, Rudyard Kipling, in 1895, writes of a boy's experience in piloting boats and barges down one of India's most dangerous rivers, the Hughley, following in the footsteps of his father, as boys are wont to do, even though his father wishes him to be doing something better. One of the most dangerous rivers in the world is the Hughley. It runs swiftly down from Calcutta into the Bay of Bengal, through constantly shifting shoals and mud banks which can capsize and swallow a big ship in minutes. Our protagonist, Jim, aged 14, is desperate to become a pilot himself and spends all his time on the water and in the harbors, making friends among the men who know the river and storing away precious information. His father does not encourage him and wants him to become a clerk in an office. One day the skipper of a Chinese junk, unwilling to pay the high charges for pilotage, asks young Jim to take his craft down the river. And he agrees entirely illegally, and navigates the shoals by following his father, who is taking a big steamer down ahead of him. What happens is the subject of the story. I hope you enjoy it, and if you do, please send us a review. And now, our story. An Unqualified Pilot by Rudyard Kipling Almost any pilot will tell you that his work is much more difficult than you imagine, but the pilots of the Hughley know that they have 100 miles of the most dangerous river on earth running through their hands. The Hughley between Calcutta and the Bay of Bengal, and they say nothing. Their service is picked and sifted as carefully as the bench of the Supreme Court, for a judge can only hang the wrong man or pass a bad law, but a careless pilot can lose a 10,000-ton ship with crew and cargo in less time than it takes to reverse her engines. There is very little chance of anything getting off again when once she touches in the furious Hughley current, loaded with all the fat silt of the fields of Bengal, where soundings change two feet between tides, and new channels make and unmake themselves in one rainy season. Men have fought the Hughley for 200 years, till now the river owns a huge building withdrawing, survey, and telegraph departments devoted to its private service, as well as a body of wardens who are called the Port Commissioners. We'll return to our show right after this brief sponsor message. And now, back to our show. They and their officers govern everything that floats from the Hughley Bridge to the last buoy at Pilot's Ridge, 140 miles away, far out in the Bay of Bengal where the steamers first pick up the pilots from the pilot brig. A Hughley pilot does not kindly bring papers aboard for the passengers, or scramble up the ship's side by wet, swaying rope ladders. He arrives in his best clothes, with a native servant or an assistant pilot to wait on him, 
and he behaves as a man should who can earn two or three thousand pounds a year after twenty years' apprenticeship. He has beautiful rooms in the port office at Calcutta, and generally keeps himself to the society of his own profession. For though the Telegraph reports the more important soundings of the river daily, there is much to be learned from brother pilots between each trip. Some million tons of shipping must find their way to and from Calcutta each twelve month, unless the Hughley were watched as closely as his keeper watches an elephant. There is a fear that it might silt up, as it has silted up round the old Dutch and Portuguese ports twenty and thirty miles behind Calcutta. So the port office sounds and scours and dredges the river, and builds spurs and devices for coaxing currents, and labels all the buoys with their proper letters, and attends to the semaphores and the lights and the drum, ball, and cone storm signals, and the pilots of the Hughley do the rest. But in spite of all care and the very best attention, the Hughley swallows her ship or two every year. Even the coming of wireless telegraphy does not spoil her appetite. When Martin Trevor had waited on the river from his boyhood, when he had risen to be a senior pilot, entitled to bring up to Calcutta the very biggest ships, when he had thought and talked of nothing but Hughley pilotage all his life to nobody except Hughley pilots, he was exceedingly surprised and indignant that his only son should decide to follow his father's profession. Mrs. Trevor had died when the boy was a child, and as he grew older, Trevor, in the intervals of his business, noticed that the lad was very often by the riverside. No place, he said, for a nice boy. But as he was not often at home, and as the aunt who looked after Jim naturally could not follow him to his chosen haunts, and as Jim had not the faintest intention of giving up old friends there, nothing but ineffectual growls came of the remark. Later, when Trevor once asked him if he could make anything out of the shipping on the water, Jim replied by reeling off the list of all the house flags in sight at the moorings, together with supplementary information about their tonnage and captains. "'You'll come to a bad end, Jim,' said his father. "'Boys of your age haven't any business to waste their time on these things.' "'Oh, Pedro at the sailor's home says you can't begin too early.' "'At what, please?' "'Piloting. I'm nearly fourteen now, and and I know where most of the shipping in the river is, and I know what there was yesterday over the Mayapur Bar, and I've been down to Diamond Harbor. Oh, a hundred times already, and I've... "'You'll go to school, son, and learn what they teach you, and you'll turn out something better than a pilot,' said his father, who wanted Jim to enter the subordinate civil service.' but he might just as well have told a shovel-nosed porpoise of the river to come ashore and begin life as a hen. Jim held his tongue. He noticed that all the best pilots in the port office did that, and devoted his young attention and all his spare time to the river he loved. He had seen the nice young gentleman in the subordinate civil service, and he called them a rude native name for... clerks. He became as well known as the bank shawl itself, and the port police let him inspect their launches, and the tugboat captains had always had a place for him at their tables, and the mates of the big steam dredgers used to show him how the machinery worked, and there were certain native rowboats which Jim practically owned, and he extended his patronage to the railway that runs to Diamond Harbor, forty miles down the river. 
In the old days, nearly all the East India Company's ships used to discharge at Diamond Harbor, on account of the shoals above. But now ships go straight up to Calcutta, and they have only some moorings for vessels in distress there, and a telegraph service, and a harbor master, who was one of Jim's most intimate friends. He would sit in the office listening to the soundings of the shoals as they were reported every day, and attending to the movements of the steamers up and down. Jim always felt he had lost something irretrievable if a boat got in or out of the river without his knowing of it. And when the big liners with their rows of blazing portholes tied up in Diamond Harbor for the night, Jim would row from one ship to the other through the sticky hot air and the buzzing mosquitoes and listen respectfully as the pilots conferred together about the habits of steamers. Once, for a treat, his father took him down clear out to the sandheads and the pilot brig there and Jim was happily seasick as he tossed and pitched in the bay. The cream of life, though, was coming up in a tug or a police boat from Diamond Harbor to Calcutta over the James and Mary, those terrible sands christened after a royal ship that they had sunk 200 years before. They're made by two rivers that enter the Hughley six miles apart and throw their own silt across the silt of the main stream, so that with each turn of the weather and tide, the sands shift and change underwater like clouds in the sky. It was here. The tales sound much worse when they're told in the rush and growl of the muddy waters. That the Countess of Stirling, fifteen hundred tons, touched and capsized in ten minutes, and a two thousand ton steamer in two, and a pilgrim ship in five, and another steamer literally in one instant, holding down her men with the masts and shrouds as she lashed over. When a ship touches on the James and Mary, the river knocks her down and buries her, and the sands quiver all around her and reach out underwater and take new shapes over the corpse. Young Jim would lie up in the bows of the tug and watch the straining buoys kick and choke in the coffee-colored current, while the semaphores and flags signaled from the bank how much water there was in the channel, till he learned that men who deal with men can afford to be careless on the chance of their fellows being like them. But men who deal with things dare not relax for an instant. And that's the very reason, old McEwen said to him once, that the James and Mary is the safest part of the river. And he shoved the big black bandura that draws 25 feet through the eastern gat with a turban of white foam wrapped around her forefoot and her screw beating as steadily as his own heart. If Jim could not get away to the river, there was always the big, cool port office where the soundings were worked out and the maps drawn. Or the pilot's room, where he could lie in a long chair and listen quietly to the talk about the Hughley. And there was the library, where if you had money, you could buy charts and books of directions against the time that you would actually have to steam over the places themselves. It was exceedingly hard for Jim to hold the list of Jewish kings in his head, and he was more than uncertain as to the end of the verb audio if you followed it far enough down the page. But he could keep the soundings of three channels distinct in his head. And what is more confusing, the changes in the buoys from Garden Reach down to Sauger, as well as the greater part of the Calcutta Telegraph, the only paper he ever read. Unluckily, you cannot peruse about the Hughley without money, even though you're the son of the best-known pilot on the river and as soon as Trevor understood how his son was spending his time, he cut down his pocket money 
of which Jim had a very generous allowance. In his extremity, he took counsel with Pedro, the plum-colored mulatto at the sailor's home, and Pedro was a bad designing man. He introduced Jim to a Chinaman in Muchuatola, an unpleasing place in itself, and the Chinaman, who answered to the name of Ert Z when he was not smoking opium, talked business in pidgin English to Jim for an hour. Every bit of that business from first to last was flying in the face of every law on the river, but it interested Jim. "'Spose you take he. Can do?' Ert Z said at last. Jim considered his chances. Ert Z was asking him to take a junk down the river. A junk, he knew, would draw about 11 feet, and the regular fee for a qualified pilot, outward to the sandheads, would be 200 rupees. On the one hand, he was not qualified, so he dared not ask more than half. But on the other hand, he was fully certain of the thrashing of his life from his father for piloting without a license, let alone what the port authorities might do to him. So, he asked for 175 rupees, and Ert Z beat him down to 120. The cargo of his junk was worth anything from 70 to 150,000 rupees, some of which he was getting as enormous freight on the coffins of 30 or 40 dead Chinamen, whom he was taking to be buried in their native country. Rich Chinamen will pay fancy prices for this service, and they have a superstition that the iron of steamships is bad for the spiritual health of their dead. Ert Z's junk had crept up from Singapore, via Penang and Rangoon, to Calcutta, where Ert Z had been staggered by the pilot dues. This time he was going out at a reduction with Jim, who, as Pedro kept telling him, was just as good as a pilot, and a whole heap cheaper. Jim knew something of the manners of junks, but he was not prepared, when he went down that night with his charts, for the confusion of cargo and coolies and coffins and clay-looking places and other things that littered her decks. He had sense enough to haul the rudder up a few feet, for he knew that a junk's rudder goes far below the bottom, and he allowed a foot extra to Ert Z's estimate of the junk's depth. Then they staggered out into midstream very early, and never had the city of his birth looked so beautiful as when he feared he would not come back to see it. Going down Garden Reach, he discovered that the junk would answer to her helm if you put it over far enough, and that she had a fair, though Chinese, notion of sailing. He took charge of the tiller by stationing three Chinese on each side of it, and standing a little forward, gathered their pigtails into his hands, three right and three left, as though they'd been the yoke lines of a rowboat. Ert Z almost smiled at this. He felt he was getting good care for his money and took a neat little polished bamboo to keep the men attentive, for he said this was no time to teach the crew pigeon English. The more way they could get on the junk, the better she would steer. And as soon as he felt a little confidence in her, Jim ordered the stiff, rustling sails to be hauled up tighter and tighter. He did not know their names, at least any name that would be likely to interest a Chinaman. But Ert Z had not banged about the waters of the Malay archipelago all his life for nothing. He rolled forward with his bamboo, and the things rose like eastern incantations. Early as they were on the river, a big American oil, but they called it a kerosene in those days, ship, was ahead of them in the tow, 
and when Jim saw her through the lifted mist, he was thankful. She would draw all of seventeen feet, and if he could steer by her, they'd be safe. It's easier to scurry up and down to James and Mary in a police boat that someone else is handling than to cram a hard-mouthed old junk across the same sands alone with the certainty of a thrashing if you came out alive. Jim glued his eyes to the American ship and saw that at the Fulta she dropped her tug and stood down the river under sail. He all but whooped aloud, for he knew that the number of pilots who preferred to work a ship to the James and Mary was strictly limited. "'If it isn't my father, it's Deersley,' said Jim. "'And Deersley went down yesterday with the Bancora. "'So, it's got to be my father. "'If I'd gone home last night instead of going to Pedro, I'd have met him. "'He must have got his ship quick, but father is a very quick man.' "'Then Jim reflected that they kept a piece of knotted rope on the pilot brig "'that stung like a wasp. "'But this thought he dismissed as beneath the dignity of an officiating pilot.' who needed only to nod his head to set Ertzi's bamboo to the same work. As the American came round, just before the Fulta Sands, Jim raked her with his spyglass and saw his father on the poop, an unlighted cigar between his teeth. That cigar, Jim knew, would be smoked on the other side of the James and Mary, and Jim felt so entirely safe and happy that he lit a cigar on his own account. This kind of piloting was child's play, his father could not make a mistake if he tried, and Jim, with his six obedient pigtails in his two hands, had leisure to admire the perfect style in which the American was handled, how she would point her bowsprit jeeringly at a hidden bank, as much to say, Not today, thank you, and bow down lovingly to a buoy, as much to say, You're a gentleman at any rate, and come round sharp on her heel with a flutter and a rustle and a slow, steady swing, something like a well-dressed woman staring all around the theater through opera glasses. It was hard work to keep the junk nearer. Though Ert Z said everything that was by any means settable, and used his bamboo most generously. When they were nearly under her counter, and a little to her left, Jim, hidden behind a sail, would feel warm and happy all over, thinking of the thousand nautical and piloting things that he knew. When they fell more than half a mile behind, he was cold and miserable, thinking of all the million things he did not know, or was not quite sure of. And so they went down, Jim steering by his father, turn for turn, over the Mayapur bar, with the semaphores on each bank duly signaling the depth of the water, through the western gat, and round Makoapuri lumps, and in and out of the twenty places, each more exciting than the last and Jim nearly pulled the six pigtails out for pure joy when the last of the James and Mary had gone astern, and they were walking through Diamond Harbor. From there to the mouth of the Hughley, things are not so bad, at least that was what Jim thought, and held on till the swell from the Bay of Bengal made the old junk heave and snort, and the river broadened into the inland sea, with islands only a foot or two high scattered about it. The American walked away from the junk as soon as they were beyond Kedgeri, and the night came on, and the river looked very big and desolate. So Jim promptly anchored somewhere in gray water, with the sauger light away off toward the east. He had a great respect for the Hughley to the last yard of her, and had no desire whatsoever to find himself on the Gasper Sands or any other little shoal.
Ertzi and the crew highly approved of this piece of seamanship. They set no watch, lit no lights, and at once went to sleep. We'll return to our show right after this brief sponsor message. And now, back to our show. Jim lay down between a red and black lacquer coffin and a little live pig in a basket. As soon as it was light, he began studying his chart of the ugly mouth and trying to find out where in the river he might be. He decided to be on the safe side and wait for another sailing ship and follow her out. So he made an enormous breakfast of rice and boiled fish while Ert Z lit firecrackers and burned gilt paper to the joss who had saved them so far. Then they heaved up their rough-and-tumble anchor and made after a big, fat, iron, four-masted sailing ship, heavy as a hay wain. The junk, which was really a very weatherly boat, and might have begun life as a private pirate in Annum forty years before, followed under easy sail, for the foremaster would run no risks. She was in old McEwen's hands, and she waddled about like a broody hen, giving each shoal wide allowances. All this happened near the outer floating light, some hundred and twenty miles from Calcutta, and apparently in the open sea. Jim knew old McEwen's appetite, and often heard him pride himself on getting his ship to the pilot brig close upon meal hours, so he argued that if the pilot brig was at Gettable, and Jim himself had not the ghost of a notion where she would lie, McEwen would find her before one o'clock. It was a blazing hot day, and McEwen fidgeted the foremaster down to Pilot's Ridge with what little wind remained. And sure enough, there lay the pilot brig, and Jim felt shivers up his back as Ertzee paid him his hundred and twenty rupees, and he went overside in the junk's one crazy dinghy. McEwen was leaving the foremaster in a long, slashing whaleboat that looked very spruce and pretty, and Jim could see that there was a certain amount of excitement among the pilots on the brig. There was his father, too. The ragged Chinese boatman gave way in the most ragged fashion, and Jim felt very unwashing and respectable when he heard the click of McEwen's oars alongside, and McEwen saying, James Trevor, I'll trouble you to lay alongside me. Jim obeyed, and from the corner of one eye watched McEwen's angry whiskers stand up all round his face, which turned purple. And how is it you break the regulations of the Port of Calcutta? Are you aware of the penalties and imprisonments you have laid yourself open to? McEwen began. Jim said nothing. There wasn't very much to say just then, and McEwen roared aloud. Man, you've impersonated a ugly pilot, and that's as much to say you've impersonated me. What did yon heathen give you for honorarium? A hundred and twenty, said Jim. "'And by what manner of means did you get through the James and Mary?' "'Father,' was the answer. "'He went down the same tide, and we steered by him.' McEwen whistled and choked. "'Perhaps it was with anger. "'You've made a stalking horse of your father, then. "'Jim, laddie, he's going to make an example of you.' "'The boat hooked on to the brig's chains, "'and McEwen said, as he set foot on deck before Jim could speak, "'Yon's an enterprising cub of yours, Trevor. "'You'd better enter him in the regular business. "'On one of these fine days he'll be acting as pilot "'before he's qualified and sinking junks in the fairway. "'He fetched John Junk down last night. "'If you have no other designs, I'm thinking I'll take him as my cub. "'But there's no denying 
"'He's a resourceful lad. "'For all, he's an unlicked whelp.' "'That,' said Trevor, "'reaching for Jim's left ear, "'is something we can remedy.' "'And he led him below. "'The little knotted rope "'that they keep for general purposes "'on the pilot brig did its duty, "'but when it was all over, "'Jim was unlicked no longer. "'He was McEwen's property "'to be registered under the laws "'of the Port of Calcutta, "'and a week later, "'when the Allura came along, "'he bundled over the pilot brig's side "'with McEwen's enameled leather handbag "'and a roll of charts "'and a little bag of his own, "'and he dropped into the steam sheets "'of the pilot gig "'with a very creditable imitation "'of McEwen's slow, swaying, "'sit down and hump of the shoulders. "'Thanks for joining us "'at 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. "'I really enjoyed this story, "'An Unqualified Pilot,' by Rudyard Kipling, and hope you did as well. And if you did, please do send us a review, especially you Apple listeners, for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Until next week, Sunday night, at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, thank you all for joining us. Have a safe week, and we'll be back then. Hi, everyone. Stay tuned for a bonus short story. This one from our new short story podcast, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, which is really classic short stories number two with a few more stories from classic female authors and stories of life, love, and humor, and sometimes mystery. If you enjoy 1001 Classic Short Stories, and I know you do, you'll want to add this to your collection. And for you geeks, I'm leaving the RSS link in the show notes for you, along with Apple and Android links to all our shows, including 1001 Greatest Love Stories. I hope you enjoy. Download, share, and review. Thanks. Today's bonus short story, How the Widow Won the Deacon. I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome back to 1001 Greatest Love Stories, our sequel to 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Today's story, How the Widow Won the Deacon by William James Lampton. He was a New York humorist and also cousin of Mark Twain. And this story is one of his best. Hope you enjoy it. Of course, the widow Stimson never tried to win Deacon Hawkins, nor any other man, for that matter. A widow doesn't have to try to win a man. She wins without trying. Still, the widow Stimson sometimes wondered why the deacon was so blind as not to see how her fine farm, adjoining his equally fine place on the outskirts of town, might not be brought under one management with mutual benefit to both parties at interest. Which one that management might become was a matter of future detail. The widow knew how to run a farm successfully, and a large farm is not much more difficult to run than one of half the size. She had also had one husband, and knew something more than running a farm successfully, all of which the deacon was perfectly well aware, and still he had not been moved by the merging spirit of the age to propose consolidation. This interesting situation was up for discussion at the Wednesday afternoon meeting of the Sisters' Sewing Society. For my part, Sister Susan Spicer, wife of the Methodist minister, remarked as she took another tuck in a 14-year-old girl's skirt for a 10-year-old, For my part, I can't see why Deacon Hawkins and Kate Stimson don't see the error of their ways and depart from them. I rather guess she has, smiled Sister Poteet, the grocer's better half who had taken an afternoon off from the store in order to be present. "'Or is willing to,' added Sister Maria Cartridge, a spinster still possessing faith, hope, and charity, 
notwithstanding she had been on the waiting list a long time. "'Really now,' exclaimed little sister Green, the doctor's wife, "'do you think it's the deacon who needs urging?' "'Well, it looks that way to me,' Sister Poteet did not hesitate to affirm. "'Well, I heard Sister Clark say that she had heard him call her Kitty one night "'when they were eating ice cream at the Mite Society. "'Sister Candish, the druggist wife, added to the fund of reliable information on hand. "'Kitty, indeed,' protested Sister Spicer. "'The idea of anybody calling Kate Stimson Kitty? "'The deacon will talk that way to most any woman.' "'but if she let him say it to her more than once, "'she must be getting mighty anxious, I think.' "'Oh,' Sister Candish hastened to explain, "'Sister Clark didn't say she had heard him say it twice.' "'Well, I don't think she heard him say it once,' "'Sister Spicer asserted with confidence. "'I don't know about that,' Sister Poteet argued. "'From all I can see in here, I think, "'Kate Stimson wouldn't object to most anything "'the deacon would say to her. "'knowing as she does that he ain't going to say anything he shouldn't say. "'And isn't saying what he should,' added Sister Green with a sly snicker, "'which went around the room softly. "'But as I was saying,' Sister Spicer began, "'when Sister Poteet, whose rocker near the window, "'commanded a view of the front gate, interrupted with a warning, "'Shh! Why shouldn't I say what I wanted to when—' "'Sister Spicer began. "'There she comes now!' "'explained Sister Poteet. "'And as I live, the deacon drove her here in his sleigh, "'and he's waiting while she comes in. "'I wonder what's next.' "'And Sister Poteet, in conjunction with the entire society, "'gasped and held their entire breath, "'waiting the entrance of the subject of the conversation. "'Sister Spicer went to the front door to let her in, "'and she was greeted with the greatest cordiality by everybody. "'We were just talking about you "'and wondering why you were so late coming.' "'cried Sister Poteet. "'Now take off your things and make up for lost time. "'There's a pair of pants over there "'to be cut down to fit that poor little Smithers boy.' "'The excitement and curiosity of the society "'were almost more than could be borne, "'but never a sister let on that she knew "'the deacon was at the gate waiting. "'Indeed, as far as the widow could discover, "'there was not the slightest indication "'that anybody had ever heard "'there was such a person as the deacon in existence.' Oh, she chirruped in the liveliest of humors. You will have to excuse me for today. Deacon Hawkins overtook me on the way here, and here said I had simply got to go sleigh riding with him. He's waiting out at the gate now. Is that so? exclaimed the society unanimously, and rushed to the window to see if it were really true. Well, did you ever? commented Sister Poteet generally. Hardly ever laughed the widow good-naturedly, and I don't want to lose the chance. You know Deacon Hawkins isn't asking somebody every day to go slaying with him. I told him I'd go if he would bring me around here to let you know what had become of me, and so he did. Now goodbye, and I'll be sure to be present at the next meeting. I have to hurry, because he'll get fidgety. The widow ran away like a lively schoolgirl. All the sisters watched her get into the sleigh with the deacon, and resumed the previous discussion with greatly increased interest. We'll return to our episode right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. But little wrecked the window, and less wrecked the deacon. He had bought a new horse, and he wanted the widow's opinion of it, for the widow Stimson was a competent judge of good horse flesh. 
If Deacon Hawkins had one insatiable ambition, it was to own a horse which could fling its heels in the face of the best that Squire Hopkins drove. In his early manhood, the deacon was no deacon by a great deal. But as the years gathered in behind him, he put off most of the frivolities of youth, and held now only to the one of driving a fast horse. No other man in the county drove anything faster, except Squire Hopkins, and him the deacon had not been able to throw the dust over. The deacon would get good ones, but somehow never could he find one that the squire didn't get a better. The squire had also in the early days beaten the deacon in the race for a certain pretty girl that he dreamed about. But the girl and the squire had lived happily ever after, and the deacon, being a philosopher, might have forgotten the squire's superiority had it been manifested in this one regard only. But in horses, too? That graveled the deacon. How much did you give for him? was the widow's first query, after they had reached a stretch of road that was good going and the deacon had let him out for a length or two. Well, what do you suppose? You're a good judge. Well, more than I would give. I'll bet a cookie. Not if you was as anxious as I am to show Hopkins that he can't drive by everything on the pike. I thought you'd loved a good horse because he was a good horse, said the widow, rather disapprovingly. Well, I do, but I could love him a good deal harder if he would stay in front of Hopkins' best. Does he know you've got this one? Yes, and he's been blowing round town that he's waiting to pick me up on the road some day and make my $500 look like a pewter quarter. So you gave $500 for him, did you? laughed the widow. Is that too much? Um, hesitated the widow, glancing along the graceful lines of the powerful trotter. I suppose not, if you can beat the squire. Right you are, crowed the deacon, and I'll show him a thing or two in getting over the ground, he added, with swelling pride. Well, I hope he won't be out looking for you today with me in your sleigh, said the widow, almost apprehensively, because you know, deacon, I've always wanted you to beat Squire Hopkins. The deacon looked at her sharply. There was a softness in her tones that appealed to him, even if she had not expressed such agreeable sentiments. Just what the deacon might have said or done after the impulse had been set going must remain unknown, for at the crucial moment a sound of militant bells, bells of defiance, jangled up behind them, disturbing their personal absorption, and they looked around simultaneously. Behind the bells was the squire in his sleigh drawn by his fastest stepper, and he was alone, as the deacon was not. The widow weighed 160 pounds net, which is weighing a horse in a race rather more than the law allows. But the deacon never thought of that. Forgetting everything except his cherished ambition, he braced himself for the contest, took a twist hold on the lines, sent a sharp, quick call to his horse, and let him out for all that was in him. The squire followed suit, and the deacon. The road was wide, and the snow was worn down smooth. The track couldn't have been in better condition. The Hopkins colors were not five rods behind the Hawkins colors as they got away. For half a mile it was nip and tuck, the deacon encouraging his horse, and the widow encouraging the deacon. And then the squire began creeping up. The deacon's horse was a good one, but he was not accustomed to hauling freight in a race. A half a mile of it was as much as he could stand, and he weakened under the strain. 
not handicapped like the deacon's, the squire's horse forged ahead, and as his nose pushed up to the dashboard of the deacon's sleigh, that good man groaned in agonized disappointment and bitterness of spirit. The widow was mad all over that Squire Hopkins could take such a mean advantage of his rival. Why didn't he wait till another time when the deacon was alone, as he was? If she had her way, she never would speak to Squire Hopkins again, nor to his wife either. But her resentment was not helping the deacon's horse to win. Slowly the squire pulled closer to the front. The deacon's horse, realizing what it meant to his master, and to him, spurted bravely, but struggle as gamely as he might. The odds and the weight were just too much for him, and he dropped to the rear. The squire shouted in triumph as he drew past the deacon, and the dejected Hawkins shriveled into a heap on the seat, with only his hands sufficiently alive to hold the lines. He'd been beaten again, humiliated before a woman, and that too with the best horse he could hope to put against the ever-conquering squire. Here sank his fondest hopes, here ended his ambition. From this on he would drive a mule or an automobile. The fruit of his desire had turned to ashes in his mouth. But no, what of the widow? She realized, if the deacon did not, that she, not the squire's horse, had beaten the deacon's, and she was ready to make what atonement she could. As the squire passed ahead of the deacon, she was stirred by a noble resolve. A deep bed of drifted snow lay close by the side of the road, not far in front. It was soft and safe, and she smiled as she looked at it, as though waiting for her. Without a hint of her purpose, or a sign to disturb the deacon in his final throes, she rose as the sleigh ran near its edge, and with a spring which had many a time sent her lightly from the ground to the bare back of a horse in the meadow, she cleared the robes and lit plump in the drift. The deacon's horse knew before the deacon did that something had happened in his favor, and was quick to respond. With his first jump of relief, the deacon suddenly revived. His hopes came fast again. His blood retingled. He gathered himself, and cracking his lines, he shot forward, and three minutes later he had passed the squire as though he were hitched to the fence. For a quarter of a mile the squire made heroic efforts to recover his vanished prestige, but effort was useless, and finally concluding that he was practically left standing, he veered off from the main road down a farm lane to find some spot in which to hide the humiliation of his defeat. The deacon, still going at a clipping gait, had one eye over his shoulder, as wary drivers always have on such occasions, and when he saw the squire was off the track, he slowed down and jogged along with the apparent intention of continuing indefinitely. Presently an idea struck him, and he looked round for the widow. She was not where he had seen her last. Where was she? In the enthusiasm of victory he had forgotten her. He was so dejected at the moment she had leaped, he didn't even realize what she had done. At two minutes later he was so elated that, shame on him, he didn't care. With her, all was lost. Without her, all was won, and the deacon's greatest ambition was to win. But now, with victory perched on his horse collar, success his at last, he thought of the widow. And he did care. He cared so much that he almost threw his horse off his feet by the abrupt turn that he gave him and back down the pike he flew, as if a legion of squires were after him. 
He did not know what injury she might have sustained. She might have been seriously hurt, if not actually killed. And why? Simply to make it possible for him to win. The deacon shivered as he thought of it, and urged his horse to greater speed. The squire, down the lane, saw him whizzing along, and accepted it profanely as an exhibition for his especial benefit. The deacon now had forgotten the squire, as he had only so shortly before forgotten the widow. Two hundred yards from the drift into which she had jumped, there was a turn in the road, where some trees shut off the sight, and the deacon's anxiety increased momentarily until he reached this point. From here he could see ahead, and down there in the middle of the road stood the widow waving her shawl as a banner of triumph, though she could only guess at results. The deacon came on with a rush and pulled up alongside of her in a condition of nervousness he didn't think possible to him. We'll rejoin our story right after this message from our sponsor. And now, back to our story. Hooray! shouted the widow, tossing her shawl into the air. You beat him! I know you did, didn't you? I saw you putting ahead at the turn yonder. Where is he in his old plug? Oh, bother take him and his horse and the race and everything. Are you hurt? gasped the deacon, jumping out, but mindful to keep the lines in his hand. Are you hurt? he repeated anxiously, though she looked anything but a hurt woman. If I am, she chirped cheerily. I'm not hurt half as bad as I would have been if the squire had beat you, deacon. Now don't you worry about me. Let's hurry back to town so the squire won't get another chance, with no place for me to jump. And the deacon? Well, well, with the lines in the crook of his elbow, the deacon held out his arms to the widow, and... The sisters at the next meeting of the Sewing Society were unanimously of the opinion that any woman who would risk her life like that for a husband... Must have been mighty anxious. Thanks for joining us for How the Widow Won the Deacon by William James Lampton. Apple listeners, we always appreciate reviews and we could really use some now at 1001 Greatest Love Stories. So please do take a moment, if you will, and send us your review. We would appreciate that. And I hope you're enjoying the shows as we build up our archives here. 1001 Greatest Love Stories is a proud part of the 1001 Stories Network featuring 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 History's Best Storytellers, 1001 Radio Days, and the 1001 History Challenge. We're now enjoying a lot of new listeners from Spotify and from Google Play, both Android apps, both free. Remember to tell a friend, and we'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Thanks for joining us. 1001 Greatest Love Stories brings new episodes every Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We hope you join us.